This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 you are listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? Welcome to the Tell Me the Story podcast, where we do our due diligence in uncovering the story laid out for us in the Scriptures held so holy by those who close their ears to it. Today, we hear the story of the Tower of Babel and the fools who built it. We must remember always that the fools in Scripture, that is, all characters in Scripture, are examples for us and examples of us. So without any further ado, let us hear the story. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there, confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So when we look at the original, the word for language is safa, which literally means lip. So in many languages, the word for language is often the same word as the word for tongue. This is vaguely true in English, as sometimes if we're feeling a bit fancy, we might literally speak of a language as a tongue, But even the word language comes from the Latin word lingua, which, of course, also means tongue. The Greek word for tongue, glossa, is also pretty famous. If you think of a glossary in a book, it comes from that word. So this Hebrew understanding of the lip being the center of speech is actually really interesting. It's as if all humanity is speaking from the same mouth, a mouth that is attempting, as we shall see, to make a name for themselves. The next word I want to focus on is the word debar, which has a variety of meanings. 
At its most basic function, it literally just means a word. It is debar, which was translated into Greek by the authors during the production of the Septuagint, which translated it to logos. Logos, again, simply means a word. It's related to the verb lego, I say or I speak. Again, there's no need to get philosophical here. The Greeks like to turn their discourse, their logi, into something transcendental and beyond mundane reality. Metaphysics, as they called it. But that's not scriptural, despite the attitude bleeding into theological discourse about the logos to theou in Christian theology. Right, and I'd like to briefly add that Hebrew likewise carries this similitude. The verb to speak in Hebrew is dabar, which is obviously from the same root as the word for word like Blaze was talking about. This verb also often has a connotation of being declarative, like how in English speaking something and saying something carry different shades of meaning. It's the same in Hebrew. Often this verb dabar or diber is used when God is speaking to or addressing his servant. And the words deliver the instruction of God. So your example, Blaze, of them speaking from the same mouth, the same words, is all the more poignant. They had their own word, not the word of God. Right, and we also must stress the importance of Debar, because like you alluded to, Rowdy, it is through the words of the scriptural God that the message of his law will be transmitted to humanity. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy in Hebrew is Debarim, the words. And yes, I'm aware it has that name because it's the first word of the book, but that should itself be a clue to its importance. This is a word not from men, but from God, and this is the major showdown in this climactic finale of this introductory section in Scripture. I say this because this story is not about explaining why there are several languages around the world. No, this is the episode where God shuts the lips of humanity and cuts off their own words and starts the process of opening his own lips and speaking his own words for our instruction. It's no coincidence that immediately following this story is Abram's character introduction, the yet uncircumcised city-dwelling Aramean who becomes a Hebrew in the Midbar, a shepherd, and thus the father of all the faithful by the example of his faith, which was counted to him as righteousness. So next, we hear about the people conspiring to build bricks and other supplies for themselves so that they can erect a city and a tower that reaches to the heavens. Why are they doing this? Because they want to make a name for themselves. They want to be famous. This should instantly remind us of the Nephilim, whose names were also known throughout the land. This is yet another reason why the original Hebrew is so important. Most English translations do not translate the passage concerning the Nephilim in this manner. It sounds awkward to our English ears, but in trying to make it more palatable for English ears, it's sacrificing the clear connection being made here. Yeah, and for our listeners who perhaps aren't familiar or may not have heard our episode over chapter 6, the Nephilim are described as the mighty men of old, the men of renown. The phrase men of renown is literally men of name in Hebrew. So these inhabitants of Shinar who want to make a name for themselves are in the earliest stages of becoming the literal, functional, fallen ones, the Nephilim because that is the inner conflict of every human under the illusion that they have power. They will chase after the preservation of their name through their actions, actions which, as we will see continually, always lead to the demise of others. 
How humorous is it then that the only characters the Bible actually gives a damn about are not the men seeking to make a name for themselves, but those marked by Shem, the name, which is a literal, functional role. The biblical story, as we will continue to see, follows the direct descendants of Shem, the name. It's a slap in the face of those people who are chasing after their own desire to make a name for themselves. What's different with Shem's descendants is that it is not the name of man they are marked by, but the name of God. Shem's name doesn't even mean anything. It literally means name, so it leaves room for that interpretation. But we're not quite there yet for all those pieces to be so obvious, so let's keep where we're at. I also want to emphasize the importance of the making of the bricks. Here, humans are adulterating what God has already created, that being the stones or ebonim in, in Hebrew, and creating lebanim, bricks. Humanity is exerting its control. To all hearers of Scripture, this is very bad news. And the next word to look at is the word for tower, which in Hebrew is magdala. If you think of Mary Magdalene, this is where her name comes from. But anyways, magdala comes from gadol, which means to become great. So this is all one big vanity project. I don't think I need to press this too much because we've already mentioned this many, many times. The Bible is making it very clear through its repetition. Next, the humans make it very clear also that they are undertaking this vanity project so that they won't be scattered and spread out, even though that's precisely what God commanded, to be fruitful and multiply. Again, it couldn't be any more clear. Yeah, and it's supposed to be a bit funny, isn't it? Just a few passages ago, like you said, God told the humans, embodied by Noah and his sons, to be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Logically, this implies spreading out across the earth. Therefore, with the aim being to populate the earth, there's not any time to set up shop and build a thing. The humans should be moving constantly, eating what God gives them from the land to survive, and fulfilling his commandment to fill the earth. But what did the humans do? They found a plain in Shinar and settled there. The Hebrew word settle is from the root yashab, which can mean an inhabitant, a settler, or in its verbal form, to dwell, or literally, sit. It's an image of stagnation which is as far opposite as you can get from what God just commanded. God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But the immediate descendants of the new human family found a nice piece of dirt that they liked and popped a squat. It's ridiculous. I know it's a bit dangerous to overly mock the characters of scripture because they are meant to be our literary avatars. They are there to be an example to us, and quite often they are literally examples of us right? We've talked before about how the Semitic root mashal intrinsically connects the concepts of ruling, like a king's rule, story, parable, and example. That being said, the Bible is no stranger to humor. It uses humor as a device in its story. However, if we lose sight of the fact that we aren't just laughing at the characters in the story, but that we should be laughing at ourselves, then we have missed the point. We've missed the example. But if we do remember this, then let's laugh. If we can laugh at the characters, and by extension laugh at ourselves, then maybe we'll be lucky enough to avoid self-righteousness. How can you be self-righteous if you're able to laugh at how much of a fool you are? And as we stated in our previous episode, Babel means the gate of God, 
where it'd be more pronounced Bob L. Bob meaning gate, L of course meaning God. And in Akkadian, it was Babilim, the gate of the gods, plural. In other words, this was a temple because the temple was where the deity dwelt. Again, this isn't really controversial. It, most scholars would say that this is some sort of allusion to uh, Mesopotamian ziggurats, which were, of course, temples. The very topmost part of the ziggurat was where the god was pretty much literally trapped up there. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's literally the dwelling place of the deity. And in the uh, Jerusalem temple, uh, the place where God was, was the Holy of Holies. Again, this is the cleverness of the scriptural authors. Gods made by human hands are able to be controlled in temples and in idols. They are fed, they are given shelter, they are all around taken care of by their worshipers. But the God of scripture is the exact opposite. It is he who feeds his people. It is he who gives them shelter. And it is he who takes care of his worshipers. You can't control God because he's the Ruach, he's the wind. And when the Israelites attempt to do so, God has both temples destroyed. There's a reason why there's no temple in Jerusalem. This isn't how the scriptural God rules. I almost have to wonder if the Hebrew singular Bab El that we find in scripture instead of Babalim is a subtle hint at Israel's attempt to contain the uncontainable God on their own terms with their own temple. Again, that's a thousand percent speculation, but it's a fascinating thought. Next, I want to speak a bit about why God comes down and confuses their language to begin with. I think a lot of people might find this part confusing because, after all, why is this unity a bad thing? Shouldn't the scriptural God want us to all be united, sing kumbaya, and shouldn't, shouldn't he want us all to work together in this manner? After all, in the divine liturgy, don't we have several prayers to God petitioning for the unity of the faithful? So what gives? Well, it all has to do with how humanity is united and for what cause. If humanity is united for the purpose of self-worship and vanity, then of course this is bad. Even in the English translation, we have a very telling parallel in the wording. The united humanity says to themselves, let us build for ourselves a city. And God replies by also speaking in unity. Let us go down and confuse their language. This is signifying that humanity is speaking from that same mouthpiece, that same lip. God also speaks from one unified lip. Now, the plurality of God is certainly implied in this parallel, but that's a whole topic on its own and certainly not an invitation to instantly theologize. The Bible has no concept of philosophical divine simplicity or monism or even the Trinity. The God of Scripture is what he is. And no, you won't understand the specifics, so please stop trying. It's a waste of time. The parallel is here chiefly for the purpose of showing how the men are attempting to deify themselves. So what's the solution? In order to unify mankind to God's will, he has to break them up first. So this is why he is undergoing this, so that humanity will fall under the instruction of the Deborim, coming directly from God's singular mouth. Remember the words of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, which picks up this idea. I have not come to give peace, but to divide. This is what it's referring to. God needs to divide our false unity of evil in order to unify us under his authority on his own terms. I want to also speak briefly about the diaspora of the Babylonians and how this is paralleled with the diaspora of the Judeans. It is through their diaspora that the scriptural God was spread to the Gentiles. 
and it is through the diaspora that the scriptures were translated into Greek for them to understand and be pointed back to the original. So speaking of Greek, the Septuagint telling of the story has some interesting points that are good to bring up here. First of all, the translators of the Septuagint very aptly picked up on the similarity between the Hebrew words Babel and Balal. The original Hebrew version highlights this similarity when it says that the area was named Babel because that is where God Balal or confused the languages. In the Septuagint, the area is called Singisis because that is where God Sinachin, the lips of men. Also, I have to point out that the Septuagint also alternates in translating language to Glossa or Heli, which is the Greek word for lip. So the Greek text is channeling the functionality of these words, even if it sounds awkward in Greek, which it does, I would imagine. Once again, the Septuagint is the model translation. It's an invitation to the original instead of a substitute. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was a hundred years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad five hundred years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Reu lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah, and Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So next we continue through the line of Shem, leading to our exalted father in the faith, our very own Abram. Shem, of course, means the name, and he fathers Arpachshad. Now, Arpachshad doesn't have an easily identifiable meaning, but the last part of his name makes up the same spelling as Kasad, which uh, in the plural, of course, is Kasdim, which is where we get the Hebrew name for the Chaldeans. Now, remember, Abram was from Ur of the Chaldees, so I would venture to guess that this is related to that concept. So Arpachshad fathers Shalach, which means to send, or even to stretch. Shalach then fathers Eber, which means to cross, and therefore is evocative of the shepherdic behavior of the Eberites or the Hebrews. I find this lineage interesting. You have Arpachshad, which may connote Chaldea, sending the crosser. It parallels Abram being a Chaldean and being sent by God into the wilderness to become a Hebrew. Next, we have Eber fathering Palag, which means to split or divide. He fathers Ru, which literally means companion, but it has the connotation of the other. In scripture, when people go divided in their separate ways, 
this is the word it uses. An example comes from Genesis 15.10 when Abram is dividing his sacrifices to God. So it fits very well with palag. Next we have sarag, which means to be wrapped or knit together. And next we have nahar, which has a strange connotation of being specifically the sound that comes from the nose. So in essence, it's a snorting. And then we have tarak, or tera, as we hear it in English. Now, we might be tempted to immediately hear a connection with Torah, but I don't think that there's really much of a connection, simply because in Hebrew they are quite different words and don't really sound the same. The similarity between the two is really only in English. In Hebrew, though, this name literally means a wild goat, but in context, it has the connotation of a crazy old man. It's not a very endearing word, and it's rather humorous. You might translate this in English even as geezer or something to that effect. And when you combine that with the snorting of Nahar's name, you almost get the impression that the authors are laughing at Terah, and by extension, Abraham's ancestry. Abraham will, of course, laugh at his own progeny with the conception of Isaac. So the parallel works here. Of course, that all might be a stretch, but given the hypertextual parallels, it seems possible. And speaking of that concept, Tarak has three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Abram is a combination of the words Ab, which means father, and Ram, which means exalted. So Abram is the exalted father. Next, we have a repeat of Nahar, again the snorting, the snicker, so to speak. And then we have Haran, which means the mountaineer. So there's quite a bit to take in, but in any event... The birth of Abram represents a break in the narrative. Genesis 1 through 11 is an introduction of sorts, and it's a condensed version of the entire narrative. The appearance of Abram signals the beginning of the main narrative. We finally made it. It's about time, but we've barely scratched the surface. I think the best way to think of Genesis 1 through 11 in the context we're discussing is as if it were acting like the abstract of an argumentative paper. Now, I know it's dangerous to compare the Bible with such modern concepts, but hear me out. The abstract of an argumentative paper is a detailed summary of the paper that, one, explains the arguments that will be discussed, two, explains the unique words that will be used and defines what they mean, and three, it provides a roadmap that illustrates how the whole paper will interconnect to itself. These are just a few uses of an abstract, and all of these are precisely what we find in Genesis 1 through 11. Even if you disagree with me, I think that this is a much better way to think about Genesis 1 through 11, opposed to the all-too-common historical interpretation or hyper-theological uh, expository ideals of humans being made in the image of God and touting our glory and all this nonsense. The scriptural authors were a lot more intelligent than any of us. That's clear when you begin to learn scriptural Hebrew and make an attempt at uh, getting into the text beyond simply reading Hebrew as if it were uh, just another translation, reading Hebrew like it was English and just trying to uh, make it agree with your favorite English translation. When you actually get into it, it's extremely intimidating, and you can see how much you don't know. So let me explain where I'm coming from with this a little bit. First, we are introduced to the scriptural God in the way he interacts with the scriptural creation. That is, a creation which is written and described by the authors in such a way 
for us as hearers of the story to understand that it is completely in God's control without question or challenge. We are likewise to understand that there was a perfect mutualistic symbiosis in God's created order, illustrated by the garden's design, with the human individual working with the animals to serve the very mother ground that produced them. We all had a job. However, due to the selfishness and a deep-seated desire to be like God insofar as one may wield power and subjugate others, the individual human and his progeny made decisions which were to the demise of the ground and the other animals, which led to God driving them out of the garden and away from it. However, God is constantly at work to lead the humans back to this state of the functional garden. We can see this in the functional resets that we see uh, with Seth and with uh, the story of the flood and Noah and his family. These are the main arguments, if you will, of Scripture being pinned in place for us here in the abstract. Second, we hear a load of Hebrew vocabulary, much of which appears to be totally contrived words. Sometimes unique words seem to be creatively twisted, cognate-like words that were copied and pasted from another Semitic language, only for the authors to change its meaning, or they will use names of deities and kings to co-opt and subjugate the very culture that produced them. And sometimes the authors outright provide the definition of a word to qualify the specific way they want us to understand it, and or to emphasize the point that they are trying to make. It's brilliant. We see this in the name Lamech, which is an anagram for the word Malek, for king, who is the first king, marked by his taking two wives for himself, the first polygamist of the Bible. Or in this chapter, chapter 11, where the words Babel and Balal are connected to twist the concept of the gate of the gods to confusion. Almost like the authors are saying that people who consider anything to be the gate of the god that they may confront and control, those people must be confused. Or how Nacham, to relent or repent or comfort or to change one's mind. That word is used to qualify Noah's name, Nuach, which means rest, making us understand that rest comes through repentance, which is extremely important for us to understand as we hear the remainder of the scriptural story and come across this idea. These are just a few examples of how the scriptural authors here in Genesis 1-11 through teach us the way in which they want us to understand the words they are using and the concepts that they represent so that we can't twist them later down the line. And third, and lastly, we can see in Genesis 1-11 through 11 how the entire biblical roadmap is laid out through the genealogies and the parallels to future stories. Blaze discussed the genealogy of Shem and the meaning of the names, but in illustration of my point about genealogy serving as a roadmap to the way the stories will unfold, let me please point us to the uniqueness of Shem's second genealogy. Some of you might have picked up on this if you're reading along with us. Shem already received a genealogy at the end of chapter 10, along with Noah and his brothers, Noah's other sons. In this genealogy, in chapter 10, after Shem's great-grandson Eber, we hear of Eber's two sons, Peleg and Joktan, but we only follow the descendants of Joktan, and then the genealogy is over. But in chapter 11, we get Shem's genealogy again, except now when we get to Eber, we follow his other son Peleg, which is interesting because Peleg, as Blaze said earlier, means to split or to divide. So clearly it's here with the two sons of Eber, that the descendants of Shem are divided. How are they divided, you might ask? Well, aside from geographically and perhaps culturally, 
This genealogy of Shem is the one which communicates the bringing forth of the true sons of Eber, that is, those who are like Eber, meaning those who cross or pass over, the Haibri, the Hebrews. And to push this even further, Eber being the son of Shelach, the one who sins, the one who sins, the one who crosses over. So it is through this line that the biblical characters uh, come, the ones that we follow in the scriptural story, the Haibri, the Hebrews. Another interesting point is that in Shem's previous genealogy, in chapter 10, starting with our Pachshad in verse 22, we get that negative Yalad, which I talked about at length in the previous episode. Yalad refers to a human producing offspring when applied to a woman, giving birth, if you will. And when it is applied to a man, it is bad news, unless it's in the Hifilstim formation, which would change the meaning so that it would mean the man is causing the production of the offspring, which is okay, because, I mean, that's how procreation works. The man provides the seed, the woman produces the child. However, when the verb is applied in the simple, unmodified form, it means to say that the man births the child himself, which is obviously problematic. If you want to hear more about this, listen to the beginning of our last episode where I talk about it more in depth, because I don't want to repeat myself and take up more time uh, than is necessary from you, dear listener. Anyway, in Shem's first genealogy, starting with our Pachshad, we are told that he produced Shelach, and Shelach produced Eber. Both instances there are the bad Yalad. But Eber is not like his father's, so the verb is not used for him. Instead, it says, to him were born two sons, Peleg and Jokthan. Please remember that this is not just the authors avoiding repetition. They have absolutely no problem being repetitive in other genealogies. There's no clear evidence to show that the authors are changing the verb form purely out of coincidence or for the sake of breaking up redundancy. So, Jokthan goes on to produce a number of sons. Then in Shim's second genealogy in chapter 11, it says that Eber yoled, or caused the production of, that is, yalad in the Hifilstim formation, which I said earlier is okay, and it does not mention Jokten, interestingly. The remainder of the descendants in the second genealogy of Shim are yoled, like Eber did for, Pelag, for Peleg, so it's not a bad deal. Admittedly, it is odd that characters like Arpachshad and Shela have both versions of the verb applied to them in both genealogies, Yelad and Yoled, respectively. But I am convinced that what is going on here is that Shim's two genealogies are being colored in different shades. As Blaze alluded to earlier, the members of the second genealogy are by no means being portrayed as perfect characters, more so as laughable ones. But this genealogy is painted in contrast to Shem's first genealogy because it is this one in chapter 11 that produces the father of faith, Abram, who has faith in God, who produces the son of promise, who produces the usurper, who goes on to be the one who contended with God, and their stories are fleshed out by the characters of Israel through the rest of the story. Here in this genealogy in chapter 11, we get the sense of a roadmap because we can sense this thematic division of the Israelites from the other nations due to it being foreshadowed in the character of Peleg. And just like how Abram's ancestors, who are mentioned after Peleg in this genealogy, are laughable characters, like Blaze explained for us, they likewise foreshadow the laughable regressions of Abram's descendants as the Israelites continue to sin and ignore God and turn away and leave him. So, there you go. 
the entire biblical story is laid out for us in these first 11 chapters. But we can only really understand it if we continue on and hear the whole thing. You don't decide whether or not you accept an argument based purely on the abstract. You've got to read the whole paper. The Bible is like this. Everything we need to know about the Bible we learned in Genesis 1-11. through But if we stop there, we will be like a child that stopped learning about life after kindergarten. We got the most important bits, but there is more to it. We must press on, allowing the Bible to strip us of our sinful nature so that we may be able to take in the bread of life, that is, the Word of God. To Him belong all honor, glory, and worship forever and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Amen.